Hello and welcome to the Irwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. I'm Alex Newman, I'm a partner in our intellectual property team here at Irwin Mitchell. I'll be your host today as we discuss manufacturers and academic institutions working together in partnership. To do so, I'm delighted to be joined by four people who all contribute to this process. I'm joined by Jeff McFarland, who's Director of Group Technology at the British engineering company Renishaw PLC, by Anthony Davis, Client Relationship Manager for the Sheffield Innovation Programme at Sheffield Hallam University, his colleague Graham Cochram, Professor of Engineering Design at Sheffield Hallam University, and finally my colleague Stuart Padgham, who's the Head of Commercial here at Erwin Mitchell. Welcome everyone. Academia and manufacturing working together is not a new thing, but with the rapidly changing environment that we're operating in, the need to innovate is increasingly paramount. This has perhaps been raised in profile by the announcement in the summer of the UK innovation strategy. Now, the knowledge that is found within a university together with the commercial know-how in a manufacturer could well be described as the perfect match. Today's podcast will discuss how those partnerships can be established, what works well and not so well in our experience, and what all parties need to consider when entering into that kind of relationship. So why not start at the top from the beginning Industry and academia have collaborated on R&D projects throughout living memory and no doubt long before that as well. But what, what can academia bring which industry can't do in-house? I wonder if I could come to Graham first to get your thoughts in relation to that. Okay, thanks Alex. Um, I suppose the, the basic uh, capability of the uh, universities is to be operating at the cutting edge of knowledge um, through their research programs and hopefully that can be applied to issues, difficulties, problems that um, companies face um, as well as the intellectual uh, side of university knowledge. There's also access to specialist equipment that may be useful for doing advanced testing or advanced product development and obviously it is quite important for academia in the current climate to be able to see the benefits of their research within an industrial context. Most research reports need to be able to show the impact of that research in an industrial context so there is a requirement, if you like, for um, academia to seek out opportunities to apply their research knowledge into uh, manufacturing. Thank you, Graham. I think I think quite a lot of the time the impression is that maybe it's it's industry that seeks out assistance from academia rather than vice versa. So it's it's really good to have, get that perspective from from the other way around. Uh, Jeff, how about you from your perspective? What what is it that industry looks to academic institutions for? Well, generally industry will understand their subject matter much better than anybody else, certainly in their sector. But what uh, industry struggle with? So so generally the likes of ourselves will have incredible depth in our own, in our own field. Um, but what we don't have is incredible breadth. <clears throat> and it's that breadth that you need to um, call upon when you run into unforeseen challenges, unforeseen problems, like, for instance, something you're manufacturing may suddenly 
with the new batch of material end up with different properties or something like that. And you you may not have the uh, in-house capability to to of a bunch of material scientists to to run into that. But there are also other reasons um, that that we need to call upon academia. Um, and partly that is some areas where the science is new and very fast moving. There's no way that um, industry can keep up with um, you know how fast that's moving. So generally, if you want to develop a technology or a new idea in that area, then <coughs> academic um, route is the best route to go to try and build some knowledge. Thanks, Jeff. I mean, I know I know from personal experience working on or supporting this kind of collaboration that often one of the parties, particularly the uh, um, the, the the business which is looking to go into partnership with academia, will have, as you say, that particularly deep knowledge in relation to a particular area of specialism. But then it's you know the, all, all of the areas of technology surrounding that particular specialism, which um, the particular project needs to yeah. incorporate or is relevant to it, which is which is where that that additional um, insight and, and breadth of knowledge is, is required to provide that kind of rounded understanding of the whole subject matter. So yeah, good 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 to see that that's you know, my experience at least is uh, it, it's common with yours as to, to as to you know what what kind of thing um, and, and motivation brings those brings those parties together. A Anthony, um, what are your thoughts in relation to that particular issue? I was just going to add, really, one of the other things which academia can bring to industry, uh, and increasingly I think some companies are looking for it, is a pipeline of talent. Uh, and particularly now, more than, than ever, we're hearing about um, you know shortages of, of, of skills in, in, in particular sectors. And I think by developing relationships and collaborations and working on projects together, um, we're seeing that, that companies are able to build a relationship with um, academia, which will give them first dibs, if you like, on the, the talent that's coming out of the universities, um, which, which is inevitably going to be in, in, in a great demand. So I think that's, that's something, you know, the, the skills that are coming out of the universities, uh, in addition to the actual uh, academic expertise that already resides there, so it's quite an important point. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Antonia. And, and Graham, did you want to add something further there as well? I was just going to comment on what Jeff was saying about um, what I would call secondary technologies. Most businesses understand their business and their markets, but there are secondary technologies that are, are emerging all the time that influence manufacturing. Electronics is moving at an enormous pace. New materials are being developed on a regular basis. If you think about things like graphene that are now being used in all sorts of materials um, and also organisational issues. There are new uh, researchers going on into different ways of, of dealing with organisations. So it is the case that companies probably are not necessarily keeping up to date with things like advances in electronics, advances in rapid prototyping processes, new materials and so on. And that's again something that, as, as Jeff was saying, broadens the uh, knowledge base of the company. Great. Thank, thank you, Graham. We talked briefly about the motivations for this kind of collaboration, but once the collaboration starts, what is the most important thing from your perspective that needs to be right if a collaboration between industry and academia is going to be a success? 
and achieve what you want it to achieve. Jeff, from a from a business's point of view, can I can I come to you first on that, please? Yeah, I mean, the most important thing that we feel is that both sides need to enter into any collaboration with a view to it being a long term relationship. Um, as soon as 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 soon as people get that into their head, things tend to move quite smoothly. But initially, um, certainly on, on, on beginning of things, quite often people are are got that quick gain mentality, and and that doesn't work because that um, often leads to suspicion um, as to what the other side is is up to. We try and see. Uh, the collaboration from the other side of the coin. In other words, what is the uh, academic department or uh, university school or whatever trying to get out of it? What what do they need to get out of it? And in general, um, what's happened for us is is the ones that have worked really well have been long term relationships and also have developed into you know strategic alliances um, and and that you know. And, and you can find a bunch of that research all over our products and it stems back, you know, 10, 15, even 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess that that mindset approaching a, a collaboration with that long term relationship in mind lends itself to, I guess, the kind of flexibility, agility that both parties are going to need if they want to see the, the collaboration run its course and probably, you know, not necessarily running in the way the parties had originally envisaged because you need to react to things that are unexpected and do that together. Exactly. Some things work, some things don't, um, you know, and but, you know, you've just got to build on your successes. Yeah, absolutely. Anthony, from your perspective, your uh, your role includes obviously a lot of the, the, the relationship management between parties to this kind of collaboration. What What's your view? What What's the most important aspect of getting it right? I think Jeff's stolen my thunder in many senses. I wholeheartedly agree. I think you know trust is a really important uh, element, and seeing it as a partnership and not as a client-provider relationship. Uh, you know, on on an interaction basis, which is is very much what uh, Jeff was saying there. I think you know there's got to be a commitment to whatever the the project or the collaboration is um, that. It can't be half-hearted, even if it's a, a relatively small project or a relatively small collaboration. It's being committed to working collaboratively and collegiately um, that will make it more successful and, and create those longer-term relationships. And part and parcel of that is, is about real effective communication. So that's certainly one of the, the most important aspects of, of, uh, of a collaboration is to communicate effectively. And, and, and in doing so, you, you'll get a, 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 a both parties will, will get, or if there's more than two parties involved, all the parties will get a much clearer understanding of, of what they're trying to achieve. And from a, a practical and an operational level, you know, what, what the outputs and the outcomes are, what the timescales are, what resources are to be involved, you know, who's going to do what and by when and so on. So it, it's very much around clarity of communication uh, and expectation. But also very much around around trust and, and operating in that sense of uh, collaboration rather than sort of transactionally. If that makes sense. It it makes it makes perfect sense. Actually, it takes us really really nicely into the next thing that I wanted to to talk to you all about. 
Graham, before we do that, you, you had something that you wanted to say in relation to that, that issue as well? I think one of the important issues with any collaboration, whether it's two organisations or three or, or more, is for each organisation to understand the objectives of the other. And quite often when we start discussing possible collaborations, one of the things that I like to do is to write down what the university is expecting to get out of that collaboration and ask the company or the organisation to do the same and then exchange those. This is not in the form of a, a commercial contract, it's just to understand where the whole project will go and can go. So for example, with as I mentioned earlier, with universities uh, implementing their research into industrial organisations, it is quite useful to be able to agree that there will be the possibility of producing publications because publications are really the brownie points of academia. The more publications you do in a year, the more brownie points you get. I don't know what you get for the brownie points, but you certainly do get brownie points. And there's always a tendency, perhaps, to focus on the research and its application. But certainly for academia, it, there is a little bit more than that. And getting that down on a piece of paper, five or six key points of what we expect to achieve at the end of the project, I think is quite a good thing to do to avoid misunderstandings at the end of a two or three year project when suddenly publication becomes a problem because it's commercially sensitive. And in those circumstances, in fact, things like patents can be seen by university senior managers as the equivalent of the publication. So striving towards a, 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 a patent is quite a useful thing for ac academic staff to do. Absolutely, yeah. And look, that, that does take us on really nicely to that, that next issue. Um, it won't surprise you to, to hear that you, you're not going to escape this podcast without addressing some of the, the legal issues associated with this kind of collaboration. So I did want to come on to talk about collaboration agreements. Um, they're inevitable with, with any collaboration relationship of this nature. Um, and I wanted to get your opinions on what the key aspects are of those agreements, how important it is to get them right and what in particular is most important about the collaboration agreement. Uh, Stuart, if I can, I'll come to you first in relation to that. Thanks. The obvious piece is around the intellectual property that's being contributed and the intellectual property that is being generated. Clarity as to who owns what is being contributed and who owns what is being generated to the extent there's any exclusivity. I think we need to deal with that as well. But following on from the points made, I think in all commercial contracts I see across any field whatsoever, I think the important thing is having some idea as to the scope of what's being done in the first place, the purpose of the actual endeavour, the time scale over which that endeavour is going to be taken and also the funding and resources that both parties need. So actually we need some good commercial detail into the contract so that you both people aren't starting off with two completely different views as to what that actual project involves. And that will involve some detail being written down in some schedules and it will also involve commercial people and academic people actually paying some attention and actually engaging with the agreement rather than just leaving it as a, a lawyer's agreement to, to one side. And obviously they have all that at the start. And I suppose the other point is as soon as 
any project ever start it does tend to new ideas come up changes happen so we need the rigorous governance process in there to make sure that the project can sort of evolve during time but in a way that is sort of in keeping with the original scope and the original sort of purpose of it in the first place um, and then finally being a lawyer who always needs to think of whatever the bad side of life I think you need to have a, a process to make sure that if everybody does fall out the governance doesn't work that there is a, if there is an exit strategy for both people there's a way of getting out of that relationship um, because some relationships will blossom and as you say there'll be a really really long-term relationship between the parties others for whatever reason it won't work so we need a way of getting out and then finally to the extent that anything generated or anything contributed does infringe a third party's IP then obviously you'll need the normal indemnity protections in there to make sure that the party that has caused the infringement is a party that needs to deal with the consequences of it. So, so I suppose my views as to broadly the types of topics you need to, to cover. One thing I did want to come back to Graham about, Graham, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that um, one of the things that you'll often do is, is sit down and, and write out on a piece of paper what the university's objectives are in a particular collaboration group, a collaboration that you mentioned that that wouldn't necessarily be for the collaboration agreement. And I was just wondering why, why that's your view, why you wouldn't try to make sure that the objectives, even the soft objectives of, of the university of one of the parties to that agreement didn't find its way into the into the four walls of the contract. I think what I was intending to say was that that wouldn't have any formal status, but it would give both parties an understanding of the other's point of view. But clearly, once that those two documents have been merged together to identify uh, company um, interests and university interests, then it would be obviously necessary to incorporate those into an agreement. I think what Stuart was um, I wouldn't say suggesting, but what was the thought that there is a possibility that the university would not particularly involve itself in the, the detail of the commercial contract because it's the company that's going to exploit the research commercially. But I think a commercial contract needs not only to say who has intellectual property rights, but who has control over the possibility of publications and so on and so forth. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes, makes makes perfect sense to me. Jeff, could I come to you on um, your experiences and your views on what what the most important aspects of the the commercial agreement are, um, which are most in, which are most important to get right? I, I think from a tick list point of view, Stuart's done a very good job of covering um, pretty much um, most of the things that need to be covered from a legal aspect. What generally though gets missed out slightly in my view um, is that um, it's it's um, the techs at the end of the day that have to make this thing work and the techs I mean by the uh, engineering or, or science-based people at the university or, or the engineering or science-based people in the company it's that combination that that tends to make things work and sometimes the um, the legals on either side um, get a little bit in the way. I, I mean that in there ever so nicely, but the it, you know sometimes what really gets missed out on a lot of this stuff is the um, the, the definition of the problem and the value of the IP of the problem. 
you know, the, the, at the end of the day, necessity is the mother of invention. And there's an awful lot of things out there that are solutions going around looking for a problem. But the things that are really commercially viable are, are, the, are the problems looking for a solution. And, and that needs to be highlighted generally a little bit more, I think, in, in a lot of this. Because generally, the, the background in terms of the problem um, and the application of the problem will, in a large sense, dictate where we go in terms of um, the foreground IP and directing it and managing it and, and, and avoiding avoiding pitfalls. So, um, I, you know, with that, you, you've got to look at who's contributing as well. But, but generally, I think um, at, at the end of the day, there isn't enough um, understanding or guidance given to the problem and the information that comes with that problem in terms of the application. Sure. Thank you, Jeff. Stuart, I think you, you had your hand up. You were you were going to contribute something there. I was only going to say I think I agree. I agree with both of you, and I think I, I think my my plea was for both for both parties, non-lawyers, to be involved in the contract and to understand what is in the contract and to define the problem and to define the purpose and actually not think of it as a a, a legal artifact that is created in the um, abstract, but it should be a way of helping helping the parties come together and helping people start to sort of a starting point in the process of solving those problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I know I often come to this sort of agreement, read a contract after the event, after it's been drafted, when potentially there are some issues. Uh, and quite often it's very difficult to work out from the four walls of the contract what actually the objective of the parties was behind the behind the collaboration and what the ultimately the intended outputs were now no doubt those matters are documented elsewhere in various documents which have passed between the parties but um very rarely finds its way into the contract so may, maybe as you say jeff that will be uh, a lesson that everybody can learn going forward to think about that. Not, not just the, the the legal aspects of it but what are the commercial operational practical objectives do they need to be in that contract Jeff, one of the things you mentioned, one of the one of the terms of art, I guess, that you mentioned in, in your answer a minute ago was was foreground intellectual property. I regularly read contracts which address ownership and exploitation rights in relation to background intellectual property as a category of technology which um, the contributors to a collaboration will bring. And also this concept of foreground intellectual property, which captures now, the, the new technology, the new intellectual property assets which are generated as a result of a collaboration. And I often see those different baskets of IP rights, if you like, defined in quite different ways from contract to contract. And one of my questions was how, how important it is for you as businesses, as academic institutions going into a, going into a collaboration to make sure that the legals associated with those two categories of intellectual property rights are correct and and also how often you find that actually that the lawyers and the business teams working on these agreements end up getting it wrong jeff if i can i'll, I'll come straight back to you in relation to that i think i mean i, I think in my view um over 20 odd years experience, the background is always much easier to define or can, and, and I guess it's easier to define because it's the past and, and it's the known. Um, foreground is always much more difficult to define. 
But what do you define as foreground IP? You know, uh, a lot of people just narrow it down to the, well, who had the idea and who did the work? You know, but in, in my view, the guidance and, and lots of the uh, thinking behind why why certain routes were chosen and whatever else needs to come into play in that as well. And that is very difficult to define, um, but it is important because, you know, that understanding, that guidance given can can stop you just going down a dead end alley um, or going down. Um, well, this is a really good solution, but guess what? It's impractical to 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 apply to the problem. So, um, uh, foreground IP is definitely very difficult to define, um, and the the harder the harder you try and define it, I guess the easier it is to sort out difficulties when when you get to difficulties. But but the reality is that you know if we're all working as a team, then then we should be thinking of success, not difficulties. So, so, and if from that perspective, you sort of want a bit more loose definition if you're thinking about success rather than a tighter definition if you're thinking about failure. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very conscious that, that the lawyers who get involved with these things are, are often the kind of prophets of doom uh, and, and, and are seen as very negative in their, in their outlook on the whole uh, on the whole collaboration. And, and we as lawyers absolutely need need to make sure that we do see the positives and we are a, a positive um, influence in, in getting those agreements right. Gra Graham, um, I think you had a, a couple of comments that you wanted to make in relation to that issue as well. I just wanted to suggest that in many circumstances, background IP can become foreground IP. The academic has been selected on the basis of it, a historical performance in a particular area. So would come to the party with a certain amount of knowledge, which when applied to a different set of circumstances might be thought of as foreground IP. But as I say, that background IP could be translated into foreground IP. So I'm really reinforcing the point that, that uh, Jeff was making, and that is where does the dividing line come? Um, and it's not easy to define. I absolutely agree. Look, the, I think conceptually often um, there's a view that background and foreground IP are mutually exclusive categories and conceptually they're easy to, to divide, but operationally when it comes to any particular project, trying to apply those principles to a particular body of know-how can be can be very difficult indeed. And, and actually the next topic that I, I wanted to come on to is, is about that you know, nexus between what happens on the ground carrying out the project in practice and the relationship between what happens in in practice with with the collaboration agreement um, and i guess the first question and it's it's one i'd like to come to you first on graham if i can is you know, how much attention do the project teams really pay to the contract you know, what the contract requires what it prohibits all that kind of stuff when they're actually carrying out the project working in collaboration day upon day, week after week, month after month, and maybe year after year? I think the answer to that would depend upon the nature of the project, really. If it's a very large project, you would hope that there'd be a project manager that can uh, bring all parties, perhaps the technical people from the company and the, and the uh, academic people, into review processes. I, I don't believe that the academics will carry 
a copy of the commercial contract in their back pocket and refer to it every morning before they go into the, the laboratory or whatever. But clearly, if one is operating within that environment, it's quite important that people do not get sidetracked off what was the agreed aims and objectives and outputs uh, of any particular collaboration. Absolutely, yeah. And, and from your from your perspective, Jeff, from from in industry managing a collaboration with academia, how much does the contract play a role, and how much is it left to the teams to be flexible and, and agile? What what's the balance between the two? Well, I, again, if the techs on either side, and I mean the engineers and scientists on either side, get on well together, work together, um, generally there's excellent progress made. What I can say is that um, generally engineers and scientists um, don't really give uh, much of a hoot about legal <laughs> details, um, and 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 so so the you know it's not really referred to very much if if at all. I think the core thing in instilling in those techies is is the uh, importance of uh, confidentiality and integrity. You know, and I mean that from the point of view that um, you've got to you've got to always realize what the other side of the coin looks like. And in, in general, you know, if, if we, we always look, well, what is the most important thing for the university or, or the academic to do here? And generally it is to publish. And, and so, so we have got to have our house in order to make sure that any IP that is filed is done so in a timely matter that allows publications to take place. And, and, and from the other side of the coin, the university's got to realise that our, our most important aspect is uh, commercialisation. I mean, otherwise, um, the, the, we don't generate any revenue. But, but I, I think it, it also gets back to the, the important aspect that somebody mentioned earlier. I think it was Graham, where, um, you know, at the end of the day, people make this work. And, and whether those people move on um, to a different organization or actually join, hopefully, the commercial uh, company, that in a way is a key key uh, output and a key thing in terms of knowledge transfer and also is a key thing in building that long-term relationship. So I, I guess in the long and the short, the techs don't really give a crap about the legal agreement. Uh, if everything's gone well and there's a good relationship and it's successful, it's only when it becomes unsuccessful that that then that, that comes into play. Yeah, absolutely. Everything you said there certainly certainly resonates with, with me. Anthony, you had some, some thoughts in relation to that issue as well, I think. Yeah, I was just going to add really that it, to some degree it depends on the type of project. For example, if you've got a, a large um, collaborative R&D project where you've got a number of uh, industrial partners and uh, perhaps several uh, universities as well, and you're in receipt of substantial amounts of public funding, grant funding, then you will find in those situations, and, and Graham alluded to it, that, that you know the governance perhaps of the contract becomes more important there because people are... are perhaps frightened of the fact that if they don't comply with the terms of the contract, that the grant payments either may be withheld or, or, or reduced and so on. So there's a financial penalty to some degree. Uh, and, and 
for not complying to the letter uh, and the terms of, of the agreements that are put in place, whether that's, you know, when certain uh, deliverables are, are achieved. Uh, and you've got much less flexibility than in a, a, a contract which is just exclusively between, you know, two parties for a, a commercial uh, engagement, should we say, uh, and where communication will uh, and trust will essentially help you to to work your way through any any sort of minor issues. But once you've got sort of large scale external agencies involved through through the provision of grant funding, it becomes much more difficult to to avoid complying with all the terms of a contract. Understood completely. There are there are some some reasons which are more compelling than others why one of the parties might get that contract out of the bottom drawer and make sure its pages are turned more frequently than it otherwise might be. So Stuart, from your perspective, you know, you when you get involved in in, in drafting this kind of agreement and supporting um, the parties to these agreements, you know, how often do you find that you're involved until the point of execution and then you hear nothing, you hear nothing further and Conversely, how often do you find actually you are kept involved to help the parties manage the contractual relationship throughout the life cycle of the project? Generally in life, we don't get involved, I think, too much in cases of, as you say, successful contracts which are going well. People do tend to just get on and deal with them and don't come back to the lawyers all the time, which I think is a, is a good thing. And when they're going <clears throat> slightly off kilter, then you'll find people phoning you up and ask what's going on. Um, in defence of the contract, draft, try and tell everybody how to run every little inch of project, and you actually deal with it in a slightly more sensible approach. I think if you, I hope it helps to set the parameters of the project at a sort of relatively high level, and I think that then gives people, hopefully, can give people guidance as to how to conduct their, their whatever, how to conduct the actual progress of the project. So I think there's there's a there's a degree to which how you draft people's obligations, how you draft the purpose. So you're not trying to absolutely micromanage everybody, but you do set a framework that hopefully the techies can look at very occasionally to make sure they've not completely gone off the starting point. Thank, thank you. I mean, I I do occasionally get involved, typically after the agreement has been entered into and after the collaboration has been got going ongoing for for a period of time and. My involvement, as often as not, is when one one party thinks maybe something is going wrong or is likely to go wrong, and there might be some question about, for example, whether the background intellectual property of their counterparty is being used for purposes it shouldn't be used for, or there's a suggestion that some foreground intellectual property is being used for the purposes of another project, which, which isn't in scope. And quite often I'll, I'll say to businesses who approach me and ask that sort of question is, well, look, operationally, what have you done? How have you set yourselves up? And if you haven't already, how can you set yourselves up so you can better audit and manage um, the flow of information internally to prevent the accidental sort of cross-pollination of transfer of technology from one project to another in circumstances where it shouldn't be transferred? Um, I've certainly never found a perfect solution either already implemented or a perfect solution which I've been able to propose which is practically achievable. So again when it comes to this kind of 
connection between the the agreement, the risks associated with the kind of the way background and foreground intellectual property is treated and how the project is conducted on the ground. What typically do businesses and academic institutions do? What could they do? What might they do better to try to, to manage that? Or am I just completely off piste and in reality, is it just not regarded as sufficiently risky to, to, to concern for the concert parties to concern themselves about about sorting that and, and op operating with a, an operational model which accommodates those risks. Great. Graham, can I come to you first in relation to I think that the difference between a commercial contract which identifies the roles and responsibilities of the significant members of both parties would not really be helpful to the academic who would probably go away and in the context of that commercial contract write a project plan. I mean the academic would want to know what particular activities he's undertaking as he goes through the project. Now, I, I'm, I'm not sure but perhaps Stuart can clarify I wouldn't see a commercial contract going beyond roles and responsibilities uh, of the parties uh, involved in the contract. And you don't think it should or you? I don't think that a commercial contract would go as far as the detail of a project plan on a timeline with certain milestones and outcomes in comparison to the detail that uh, uh, the university would require in order to complete the project. There's a difference in, in my view between a commercial contract that uh, lays out the roles and responsibilities of all of the parties and a project plan which is a series of activities that needs to be undertaken. Agreed. I don't think you need that level of detail, but you probably need some high level view as to are we talking about a one year or three year yeah, sure. project to give some kind of framing. Yeah, you, 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 need, you need the target out, outcomes, don't you? Because that's the whole object of the exercise. But that wouldn't be sufficient for the academics to get on and do the work. They would have to produce a project plan which the industrialists would would agree with or would participate in the formulation of. No, I think the last thing you then want is is to try and have an agreement that's so detailed that whatever us, yeah, which tries to micromanage everybody, but it needs to provide a process to enable yeah. things to be agreed and developed. Yeah. Jeff, from, from your point of view, when it comes to the the industrial partner managing itself operationally to ensure that you know, background and foreground intellectual property and associated technologies are only used for the purposes for which they ought to be used. Is is there a kind of a, a golden rule? Is there a particular way of doing that or is it something which has to be assessed and implemented bespoke for each project? It, it sort of has to be managed, I guess, for each project because um, by the very nature things can be be quite different, you know, in terms of. So, so if you're talking about a research project, uh, generally, a research project, by the very nature of it, is is fraught with many unknown unknowns, um, and and so the the outcome is very difficult to predict. If it was easy to predict, then it wouldn't be a research project. So so um, th that one is 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 more difficult to to define. But 
in a sense that, you know, if if you're the industrial party and you want to own pretty much all of the uh, foreground IP, then my assumption is generally you will be paying for most of it, you know, most of the work that's to be done anyway. So, so um, on that basis, then you've got a fair right to exploit it. But bear in mind that um, your partners um, in terms of academia have a fair right to publish as well. But if, if it's more of a development project with you know, multiple parties on it and whatever else, then it has to be very well defined. Um, but generally, we, you know, as a rule, we find those much less useful because uh, what you have uh, in a project that's got many partners in it is um, everybody's uh, somewhat unwilling to show um, what they've got in the cupboard um, and everybody's a lot more protective. But, you know, but but hence the very nation of, of the very nature of having something that needs to be better defined. Thank you, Jeff. I'm, I'm conscious that we're running towards the, the end of the time we have available to us and we don't want this podcast to be too long. So I'm, just, I'm going to come to each of you now with a, a final question, um, which is if there was one thing you wanted our listeners to take away from today's podcast, one key lesson about how to make collaboration agreements successful, what's the most important thing from from your perspective Anthony can I come to you first on that please uh, you can and I, I, I guess my takeaway would be to ensure that you develop and build the relationship so that uh, when you are in the project you've got the degree and level of trust that you are all participating in it for the right reasons you know where the project is intending to go and if there are hiccups along the way you believe you've got the best chance of working those out because you have a trusting relationship that's been developed so you know just do it and get involved maybe start small but build those relationships um so that you know that the the agreements are there as a backstop rather than a, a stick thank you Graham, how about you? What's the what's the one key takeaway from your perspective? Right, my thoughts are really about encouraging manufacturers to get involved in collaborative projects rather than what makes a good one. And that is, don't be afraid to approach the universities. The universities are keen to work with industry. They have specialist departments that are industrial liaison departments and uh, you will not lose any of the intellectual property you think you're, uh, you have by going and discussing with universities opportunities for doing collaborative research. I think that is quite important. Before we get to collaborative agreements and commercial agreements, you have to find a suitable partner uh, within the university sector to deliver um, the outputs that you're, you're looking to achieve. Graham, thank you. Jeff? If there is one key thing, what is it from your perspective? The one key thing from my perspective is play as a team. Um, and the reason I say that is um, uh, the team should be looking at what the team objectives are, not what either side's objectives are. Um, and the key thing in there is that uh, you need to be, in, in my view, um, if it's going to be a long-term relationship, you need to be monogamous in that, um, you know, 
if the industrial partner is working with a particular um, academic institute in a particular area, then that's their focus. Don't don't go and try and work with five different organisations in that area. You'll just end up um, losing trust, um, and vice versa. So 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 be monogamous about about what you're trying to achieve in, in terms of a team, and and treat it as a long term relationship because that's where you gain spades and spades because things don't always work, but many things do. Jeff, thank you. Stuart, how about you? I think I'd follow on a theme of all of those. I think keep communicating and keep talking. Issues will arise. If issues do arise, they're probably small at the start, but if people actually engage with one another and try and deal with the small issues as they arrive, you tend to probably have a far better relationship going forward than if people ignore them for a long time and suddenly a massive issue blows up because no one's actually continued to address the issues that naturally arise in these kind of relationships. Thank you. Yeah, and, and from my perspective, what, what really stands out is the need for both parties to not only be aware of, but focus and have as one of their own objectives, the objectives of their collaborating party, um, both at the contracting phase and throughout the life cycle of the project. If everybody feels that everybody is pulling together for to meet the collective objectives of, of, of everybody involved, then if issues do come along, they're so much more likely to be resolved than if parties are really pulling in their own direction without much thought to what the other is trying to achieve. Look, thank, thank you all very much for contributing today. It's been it's been a pleasure to speak with you. For those of you who are listening, that's it for today. Thank you very much for listening to the Owen Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please do join us for our next episode. Thank you.